Undeceptions podcast. Small Wonders with Laurel Moffat. There's so much emphasis in the working life, not to mention life itself, on being productive, on making the most of time, on staying focused, harnessing your attention, staying on task, write to-do lists, clear your inbox, get to work, get things done. If you spend any amount of time on social media, you may find that life hacks start to populate your feed. And if you spend any amount of time in a workplace, notions of productivity, inputs, outputs, and KPIs may populate your working day and life. It makes sense. I mean, efficiency and productivity in the workplace is pretty important if an organization is going to stay solvent and more than that, grow. And most organizations, and people for that matter too, want something more than just solvency, getting by. They want to grow. Economic growth is also the desire of most countries. I don't think I've heard of one that doesn't want to be richer, healthier, more educated, And economists argue that the key to a nation's growth, its wealth, health, and learning, is its productivity. The idea being that if you can harness the productivity of every worker, just as a company will grow richer, bigger, stronger, surely too a nation will thrive. Paul Krugman writes in The Age of Diminishing Expectations, Productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it is almost everything. A country's ability to improve its standard of living over time depends almost entirely on its ability to raise its output per worker. Outputs, workers, productivity. The irony is, though, that when the desire for productivity becomes obsessive, it ends up being, well, unproductive counterproductive. It can end up hampering work rather than advancing it. And work is a good thing. I don't mean to suggest otherwise. There's much to be said for taking part in the world by making something for the benefit of others, whether it's a chair that's made well or a coffee, a surgery conducted with excellence or a symphony. But with all the touted benefits of productivity, of working well and efficiently, of staying focused and on task, we can lose sight of the value and the good that can come from staying a bit less on task, from being a little less productive, from letting the mind wander a bit, daydream. For who knows where such a wander might lead?
There are scholars who study daydreaming, whose work is to examine the mind that is not at work, that's off the clock, so to speak. In 1975, Jerome Singer wrote what is considered to be the Bible on daydreaming, the inner world of daydreaming, which laid the foundation for all the work on the wandering mind that has come since. What Singer found is that daydreaming, rather than being something unproductive, is actually essential to daily life and to creative thinking. But what is meant by daydreaming? This is pretty important to clarify. Singer distinguishes between three kinds of daydreaming. What he calls positive constructive daydreaming, which is characterized by playful wishful imagery and playful creative thought, then dysphoric daydreaming, which is the kind of obsessive anguished fantasies, and lastly, poor attentional control, which is the inability to concentrate on either the ongoing thought or the external task. The type of daydreaming that he considers to be the most beneficial is the first kind, what he calls positive constructive daydreaming. If you assess daydreaming by some sort of external metric related to productivity, whether that's in economic terms or educational terms or in terms of speed or accuracy, then most studies find that daydreaming or mind wandering has more costs than benefits. But when daydreaming is studied in terms of the effect on the daydreamer and what occurs for her in terms of the activity within her mind, it becomes almost impossible not to see the benefits. And here are some of the benefits. It's a long list. A greater awareness of yourself, creative thinking, the consolidation of memories, life planning, the assessment of goals, and planning for the future, imagining things from the perspective of another person, moral reasoning, and reflecting compassionately on others. In short, this kind of daydreaming is essential for the making of meaning. What becomes clear is how very important such daydreaming is to the understanding of the self in the world, of the understanding of the position of others, of thinking through things, examining the past and coming to terms with it, but also understanding the events of your life and looking around a moment or two, however long you happen to engage in this kind of daydreaming, and seeing yourself in the context of something that's much bigger than yourself. Daydreaming then becomes an essential part of our waking life. It would be really easy right now to jump straight to a list of very productive things that have occurred on the back of daydreaming. The inventions that have been made, the books that have been written, the music composed, the artworks created, all thanks to the work of a daydream. But I don't want to jump so quickly to the outputs. I don't want to so quickly harness the daydreaming mind 
to human productivity. Daydreaming is an opportunity to put some distance between notions of productivity and what it means to be human. Because more often than not, when productivity is part of the equation in the calculation of value of human life, value tends to go down rather than up. In the great industry of productivity, people are too often seen as small parts in a big machine. Little cogs, the value of each determined by its relative importance to the whole grand operation of inputs and outputs, efficiency and productivity. And these are all very tinny, hollow things to use when considering the value of a human life and the meaning of that life. The daydreaming mind steps away from ideas of productivity. And if you decide to follow it, you just might find yourself face to face with what you hold most dear, what you fear the most, what you value the most. You might find yourself wondering what life is like in the shoes of another person, or wondering, what is my life? And what is her life or his? And is there anything bigger than my life? What you might find as you take in the landscape of your life is some perspective, or at least an appetite for perspective and meaning. And this is what researchers of daydreaming have found that happens more often than not. Perspective is a pretty important thing. Any artist or architect will tell you this. With perspective, scale is set. A context is created. And the rules of that perspective are set outside of yourself by something outside of yourself. This kind of thinking doesn't happen if productivity barges into the daydreaming mind, nor do such thoughts occur in the distracted mind or the despondent mind. They happen in the daydreaming mind the curious mind. This is the land of questions and curiosity. It's the land of metaphor and meaning. To ask the question, what is my life, may seem like a frightening prospect, but it doesn't have to be. It all depends on where you go looking for an answer. If you search for the phrase, positive, constructive daydreaming, you won't find it in the Christian scriptures. But you will find passages that display this kind of thinking that can go on in a daydream. And it is thinking. It's musing. It's pondering. It's wondering. And I think that Psalm 23, one of the most famous songs ever written, is a good example of this. In the song, the writer invites the reader or listener on a journey to wander through an imagined landscape with God and where he leads. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This song makes no sense if you're looking for evidence of productivity or any kind of input or outcomes, and it would be ridiculous to try. Because this song isn't about productivity or about any of the things by which we so often measure success and health. It is, instead, an appeal to imagine your life safe, growing under the protection of God's care. You could imagine the scenes of this song occurring over the course of a single day, or over a span as long as a life. But whether it's a day or a life, it's about safety and rest. It's about getting through a really dangerous time and place unscathed. It's about feeling safe enough to eat, even when the thing that scares you the most is staring you right in the face. It's about not scrambling to make your own meaning, but instead finding yourself where you're meant to be. It's about coming home to the house of God, a place not wired by productivity, or mired by distraction or despondence, but instead marked by the growth of good things, the best things, rest, hope, safety, goodness, mercy, and love, and a full and flourishing life. Imagine what it would be like to find yourself there. Exceptions Podcast.